0: I would invite you to turn to John chapter, John chapter 9 this morning. And this morning we're going to look at uh, the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. And this morning we're going to look at this as a, as a pattern for uh, prayer and for healing prayer. You know, if you look at, the, uh, at all the religions of the world, and you take those religions of the world and you assess them and compare them side by side, one of the things that becomes glaringly obvious is that the Christian faith is a faith interested in the body. It's a faith that talks extensively about healing and the healing of the body. You see that uh, all through the Bible, this idea that God is a creator God. God loves his creation. And God has the ability to enter into his creation whenever he wants and bring change and bring improvement. You go into uh, the New Testament and you, uh, the Old Testament, you, you see this in some amazing places. Psalm 103, verse 3, bless the Lord, O my soul. Then he says, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals your diseases. Another verse, Psalm 6, verse 2: "O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me, or... Psalm 143, verse 7, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I'm just telling you, if you compare the religions of the world to the Christian faith, a glaring difference is the concern that God has for the body and the concern that God has of entering into our situation and bringing change. When you come to the New Testament, it's amazing that Jesus gives that ministry to his disciples. Matthew 10, verse 8, He says to the 12, he says, "Uh, I want you to go and I I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. And then what's interesting is that he gives that virtually the same command to the 70, right? The 70 are not the 12. The 70 are a wider group of disciples that seem to represent what the church would become. And he says something similar. He says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God is. Has come near to you. What I find interesting is that when you then go into into the letters, we have this same concern. The God of the universe concerned about the human body. The God of the universe concerned about about our sicknesses and illnesses and diseases. And so James five fourteen says, "Is any of you sick? Well, let him call the elders of the church and let him pray." In that one command, James is encouraging the discipline of healing prayer. But it wasn't just for the elders, because then he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. The whole church does this. And pray for one another so that you might be healed. What I'm saying is this. When you look at the, all the religions of the world and you compare them to the Christian faith, one of the dramatically unique things about the Christian faith is the concern for the body and the concern for healing healing prayer. Well, just to mention this idea creates controversy, right? The idea that healing prayer is a thing that continues after the first century creates controversy. For the past hundred years or so, the church seems to have been divided. Some people say, well, that was for back then, and it's not for now. That was good for the the disciples in the first century church, but that doesn't really apply now. That doesn't really happen now. We shouldn't be doing that kind of thing right now. And so there was a a difference in the way the church thought about these things. And then came the phenomenon of the global expansion of Christianity. And there's no fixed date for that, but it's clear that post-1995, Christianity has been exploding, especially in the global south and in the Pacific Rim. And guess what happens when people come to Christ in the global south? They read the plain sense of the New Testament. They say, Jesus told us to do this. James told us to do this. We're going to do this. And they post results. They see results. So when we've been down to Cuba, we've heard pretty amazing stories about people encountering healing partial or total after healing prayer. Same in Africa, same in Russia, same in India, same in parts of China. In this global Christian expansion, what we've seen is people going back to those commands and saying, all right, we're going to do those commands. And they are telling stories about God's dramatic intervention. Well, I think in John 9, what John is doing in part in part, is he's modeling for us, Jesus is modeling for us how we do this. So I'll look at John 9 as a way to, a way to model this. Again, I want to go back to this paradigm. Paradigm is, some people say healing prayer ended up with apostles, don't do it. Others say, no, healing prayer is a discipline. Do it often. And we definitely fall into the camp on the right-hand side. Because we have a healing prayer ministry at Grace Community Church. Started slow, began to expand, and every time I participate with our healing prayer team, I get massively encouraged by the activity of God in our church. Whether it's a, a small improvement, a mid-size improvement, a major improvement, or a healing, I love participating in this ministry and seeing the kind of things that God is doing. Okay, so we go to John chapter 9, and we begin... We're going to look at several phases of healing prayer. But the first part of healing prayer is you've got to confront your prejudice about it. Confront your prejudice about it. When somebody comes to you and asks for prayer for healing, it's possible that you harbor some form of prejudice, either against the person who requests the prayer or against God, who might not be doing this sort of thing. So verse 1, as they walked down the street, Jesus, and of course his disciples, saw a man who was blind from birth. I want you to imagine if you were with the disciples that day in Jerusalem, what would you have encountered? One of the first things that you would have encountered that, you, that none of us ever thinks about is you would have encountered the, the smells. The smells. Remember in the ancient world, they didn't have have sewage systems like we have, sanitary systems like we have. No, I mean, it was, it was outdoor plumbing. And one of the things everybody in the ancient world would always think about was the smells that emanated in these large cities. You know, the population density of Calcutta, India, is 130 people per acre. In Jerusalem, in the ancient world, ancient Jerusalem, it was 200 people per acre. That means people were jammed into homes like proverbial sardines and there was no indoor plumbing no indoor toilet and so the thing that you did in the ancient world was you constantly smelled smells that we don't smell anymore and if we do smell them we say call the plumber you know we don't smell those things and consequently because of the sanitary conditions in the ancient world many many people were sick many people were sick in fact, historians have found, they have found identification papers from the first century. And there's no picture on those identification papers. Instead, there are descriptions of people. Uh, this person has lost their right eye. This person has a scar on their left arm where they were burned. This person has a, uh, four fingers, not five. Many people, most people in the ancient world suffered some sort of of sickness, illness, or disease. And so consequently, the Pharisees began to wrestle with the problem of evil theologically. And what the Pharisees began to say was, well, if you're suffering, it's due to some sort of sin. So his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born that was the common theological discussion in the ancient world. And if you were suffering, it was your problem. You had done something to merit the suffering. Now, does that sound incredibly insensitive to you? The guy is standing right there. The guy's within earshot of the disciples asking that question. He's blind. People who are blind have unusually acute hearing. They've compensated for the lack of sight with acute hearing. He's hearing all of this. This guy is hearing a theological discussion and he's thinking, I'm, I'm assuming, like I'm a real person. And you guys are treating me as if I don't exist. And that is, that is often true with people who are handicapped. They get treated by people who are healthy as if they don't exist. I've talked to people who've suffered some sort of handicap, and he said it's uncanny how people will sort of treat me as if I I don't exist. They don't want to look at me. They don't necessarily want to engage me. It's like I'm treated as if I'm not there. So Jesus now says uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him let me tell you what jesus is not saying he's not saying this guy was made blind by god right at the very beginning of his life so that i would could do a miracle here and you guys could be blown away by the miracle he's not saying that i think what jesus is is saying is guys we got a real person in front of us a real person with real needs stop assigning blame stop looking at him as an object when you see a suffering person move in with proactive ministry, and Jesus explains this in verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Essentially, what Jesus is saying, I won't go into the, into the intricate details of it, but he's saying, look, as we have opportunities to minister to people who are suffering physically, let's do it. I'm the light of the world, so let, let's go and let's Let's minister to people who are struggling, who are suffering, who are encountering pain. This is very similar to what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. Paul says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given you a set of good works. Some of those good works include healing prayer. And what God wants you to do is walk in in the set of good works that are given to you. Similar to what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Now let's pause for a moment and let's capture the core idea in these first five verses. The point is, it's possible to see somebody in pain and to become judgmental. Sometimes we're judgmental against God. As if to say, well God, I kind of doubt you're going to do anything about this. I'm not even sure you're doing this kind of thing anymore. I haven't seen anybody healed myself, so I'm not even sure this is a thing that I should be praying for. In a way, what that's doing is it's it's casting a judgment against the God who has said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. That is a command that enjoins us to healing prayer. So uh, it's possible to become judgmental against God. It's also possible to become judgmental against the person who is requesting uh, the healing prayer. Uh, As if to say, well, they probably messed up in some way. Uh, They probably did something wrong. Maybe it's their lack of discipline. Maybe Maybe it's their sin. So, you know... Yeah, I'll pray, but probably something they did wrong. It's very easy to become judgmental when you approach somebody and want to pray for for their healing. Now I, f- I find that kind of kind of interesting because there's something about the human heart that does become judgmental. So a while back I read this book called The Right Stuff. Um, Jim Bridenstine, um, our representative who now is the is head of NASA, he called me one morning on the way to work and he said, Rod, he said I would like for you to marshal your forces and pray that we would get through this confirmation. I said, I'd be be happy to. Well, I got curious about NASA, so I decided to read the right stuff. Fantastic book. Fantastic book. But one thing out of the book really really hit me, and what, what hit me was that when the early astronauts would encounter the death of somebody in flight, they would become judgmental against that person. You know, he, he never could get the aircraft carrier thing right. Never could. You know, he never could get that one technique about landing in a rainstorm. And so here are these guys who lost a friend. But in losing the friend, they're blaming the guy. Well, it's his fault. It's his fault. He died because of some flaw in him. Human nature. It's human nature to do that. And we've got to resist that when we are, have a real person in front of us and we're asked to pray a healing prayer. Uh, I, I just want to go back to, uh, to what Jesus says in Luke, Luke 10, verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. When you see somebody who desperately needs healing prayer, don't be judgmental. Just go and offer prayer. Now, I've told you before that my my daughters tend to do this up in Seattle. Between the two of them, my daughters have nine children. One daughter has four, the other daughter has five. And I have been with my daughters when we're walking into a store and my daughter sees somebody in physical or emotional distress. My daughter, in the nicest, kindest way, will say, Would it be okay if I prayed for you? And I have seen women tear up and say, yes, please. They're not believers. But because my daughter is very kind and she says those words with great care, I've seen people who are very far from Christ say, yes, please pray for me. Um, You can do this. You can do this. So, the right response, when you see somebody in need, confront your prejudice against the one in need and against God. Now, that leads us to the second phase in healing prayer, and the second phase is use appropriate physical touch. So, uh, verse 6, having said these things, uh, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Jesus was in a part of Jerusalem where apparently there was, uh, there was a lot of pavement in Jerusalem in the ancient world, but there's also areas that were green, and Jesus spat by the side of the road into an area that was green, and he made some mud, and he began to apply the mud to this man's eyes. Let me just tell you something. That seems weird to us. It was weird to the disciples. Uh, I looked up some laws in the ancient world on spitting, and there were lots of laws on spitting. Apparently a lot of people spat in the ancient world. You were not allowed to spit if you were on the Temple Mount. Once I was, well, I was in Chicago writing the L and it said, no swearing, no spitting. And I said to my friend who is uh, living down, I said, is that like people really spit on the L? He says, oh my gosh, before the sign was up there, there was spit all over the place. What about now? There's still spit. <laughs> sign didn't do any good. There were signs against spitting on the Temple Mount. There were laws against spitting while praying. I have never prayed and spat at the same time. But I'm glad to know that that was a thing in the ancient world. There were laws that did require you to spit if somebody had offended you. I'm just saying, this would have been weird for the disciples. This is not like a common thing that everybody, everybody did. Why does Jesus do it? Well, there's two reasons there's a theological side and a practical side. Theologically, what Jesus is doing is he is going to do a miracle of creation. And so, with what comes out of his mouth, he is going to animate the dust of the ground, and he's going to apply that animated dust to the ground with what came out of his mouth and apply it to the man's eyes to do a miracle of recreation. You know, John's clear Jesus is the creator. And Jesus is now going to do a miracle with what comes out of his mouth, animating that dust, just like God did for Adam, applying it to the man's eyes so that a miracle of creation takes place um, in that man's eyes. That's the theological side. But there's also a pastoral side to it, and it has to do with touch. Um, Try this out with your spouse or your friend or your brother or sister or whomever you can't apply something to a person's eyes without gently putting your hand to the back of the head i suppose you could theoretically but but this is such a gentle thing that somebody who is not a trained eye surgeon probably is going to gently hold the head and then gently apply that to the man's eyes that was significant for that man because his source of shame was his blindness Everybody's talking about him. He sinned. Now his parents sinned. Now he sinned. Now now his parents sinned. All the while he's feeling shame. Like, I'm flawed. And everybody sees that I'm flawed. So when Jesus touches the man in the area of his shame, and he touches him gently, the man feels loved in the very area that has caused him shame. That was a game changer for that man in terms of, now of how he feels about Jesus. Jesus says something very surprising. He says, I want you to go down to the pool of Siloam, and I want you to wash your face in the pool. Here's, here's uh, part of the pool of Siloam. It's been excavated. Uh, it's at the base of the, old, uh, the city of David in Jerusalem. Here you get kind of two pictures of the pool of Siloam, but you had to walk down some steps in order to get into that pool, and this guy's blind. So uh, I... I've don't know about you, but I've 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 been I've been at the top of my stairs when it's pitch black out, and I'm I'm like feeling for like how I could get down the stairs without falling down. This guy doesn't. There's no handrails. Like the ADA doesn't didn't put handrails down there in the ancient world. You can see this guy awkwardly kind of going down into the pool, and he gets down into the pool. And he thinks, okay, well, I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do. And he kneels down and he picks up the water and he splashes the water into his eyes. And suddenly there's a miracle. Like the optic nerve connects to the brain. Like the, the retinal cells in the back of his eyeball begin to get ordered. The rods and the cones in the back of the eyeball and the retina get ordered. And now light, luxurious, luminescent light now is flooding his eyes sending information to the optic nerve the optic nerve to the brain and now this guy is blinking away the water and he's looking around and he's seeing faces and people and color for the first time in his entire life and you can imagine the guy shouting and being exultant in this newfound ability to see. He's seeing what a dog looks like. He just heard a bark before. He's seeing what a child's voice looks like. All he saw was a high-pitched voice. Now he's drinking in all these sights, and he's shouting, and there's a crowd. And the crowd now begins to converge around this man. And he begins to explain for the first time in his life, I can see, I can see. I can see. So he determines, I, I'm going to go back and I'm going to see Jesus, the guy, that, the guy that, that healed me. Because it says in verse 7, he came back seeing. Came back where? Came back to where Jesus and the disciples were. Um, however, uh, as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't get there very quickly. I, w- I want to put the pause bus- button on the story for a second. I, d- I just want you to notice that physical touch, was a core part of this story. And the principle is that when you are engaging in healing prayer, appropriate physical touch is really important. Appropriate physical touch allows a person to feel the love of Christ as you are ministering that healing prayer. How do you do it? Let me give you you two quick ideas. One idea is just simply by putting your hand on a person's shoulder. But let me just give you this caveat. You have to ask the person. Don't just automatically say, hey, can I pray for you? Bam. You gotta ask the person. Hey, would you mind as I pray for you if I put my hand on your shoulder? You have to ask them. Sometimes what Jesus would do is he would put his hand on the place where the person had the injury, like with the healing of the man born blind. If that's appropriate, you can do that. Say, what, would you mind if I put my hand on your shoulder or could I, could I put your hand on, on your head in, in this area? You have to make the ask. But appropriate physical touch is one of the ways that God uses to convey the unconditional love of God as you are praying. Obviously, this is much better if it's men with men and women with women. Uh, if you are a man and you are praying for a woman, I, I would say do not put your hand on her shoulder but put your hand about two inches away you can say do you mind if I I just pray for you you put your hand outward like this the important thing though is make the ask the other thing is sometimes it's important to anoint with oil Jesus does not do that here but James does talk about that in James chapter 5 why oil well oil was symbolic of the presence and the power of the spirit And so uh, that can be a very appropriate form of physical touch. But like the laying on of hands, you must make the ask. You must make the ask. That brings us to the third phase. And the third phase is encourage the person who received prayer to tell their story. And here's where it gets just amazing. Let me remind you that in the Gospel of John, whenever somebody is healed, Jesus does something forcing them to tell their story. Do you remember when Jesus healed the man who was paralyzed for 38 years? Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and go. In that command, Jesus gave that man a story. Here's a stinking, rotting, filthy mat, and he's walking around Jerusalem carrying his mat. And people would go, why are you carrying that disgusting, stinking, rotting mat? Why are you doing that? Because Jesus told me to. Oh, yeah, well, who is he? He's the guy who healed me. Oh, yeah? Well, what? Tell me that story. Jesus always wants the people who have been transformed to tell a story. Lazarus is the same way. Lazarus is in the grave, not for one hour or three days, but for four days. Where everybody knew that the rotting would take place, the decay would take place. And Jesus raises him after four days. Lazarus has a story to tell. This man is going to be encouraged to tell a story. But notice how he tells the story. He starts with the simple facts, simple facts of the story. His story started on the Sabbath, and people born blind were generally excluded from all religious activities. So his story starts even in a time of pain. But now he begins to tell his story, and it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Someone said, yeah, it's him. Others say, no, no, it's not him. It's somebody who looks like him. He kept saying, no, I'm the guy, I'm the guy. So they said to him, how then were your eyes open? He said, this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So what, what this guy is doing is he is just telling his simple story. It's just the beginnings of a simple story of transformation. He doesn't know all the information, but notice the people are all, they're still speaking like he's not there. He's he's still treating him as if he's like an invisible person with some sort of a disability. All he knows is that the guy who healed him was a man, ordinary man, you know, notice what it says. It says the man, the man called Jesus. That's a significant thing as we'll see in in a moment. Second, as he continues the story, he learns some more things. He is going to learn about Jesus and learn about his situation through telling the story. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner do do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Uh oh, do you see that this has now become politicized? His healing has become politicized. Two different religious political parties are now divided over this man's healing. And what does the man say? The man says, Here's what I say about Jesus He is a prophet. How does he know? How does he know? He knows through the telling of his story. Because he, here's, here's the cool thing. As you begin to tell your story, the Holy Spirit works in the context of the telling of that story, and he brings you more clarity about who God is and what God did. We've got to begin to tell the story. Now his learning accelerates. Now, the guy begins to own up to the supernatural. Um, So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I love this. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. Now, this guy did something that I have seen Christians do for decades, in truth be told, believers have done this for the past 2,000 years. They come up with an elevator pitch about their transformation, about their healing. They come up with an elevator pitch. You know what an elevator pitch is. You get in the elevator, and you've got three floors to explain something significant. you got to do it really concis- concisely and really cogently. He has an elevator pitch. Look, one thing I know, I was blind. And now I see, this guy has uh, started to own up to, up to uh, the supernatural. And now we see the fourth part, uh, where he begins to see the God-centeredness of his experience. Now things really get accelerated. This guy gets really feisty at this point in time. You've got to love this guy. You know, the guy who was paralyzed for 38 years was flat and dull and unbelieving. This guy is feisty, he's active, and he's predisposed to want to believe. They say to the man, okay, now tell tell us your story again. And the man says, why do you want to hear it? Do you guys want to become his disciples as well? He's saying this in a very, very uh, playful but powerful way. He's messing with them. And the Pharisees are these oppressive religionists. And they, won't, they want to be played with. And they get really angry and upset. They're filled with rage. And uh, so he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us. So he's, he's owning He's owning up to the supernatural, owning up to the fact this guy is a man. He's a prophet. He's done a miracle. I'm I'm gonna walk. I'm gonna walk in that miracle. And then he finally actually comes to comes to faith. John five thirty five to thirty <clears throat> thirty eight. Um, so the guys pretty much all alone remember his parents had come and his parents you know said hey look you know ask him he's of age he'll tell you everything his parents were afraid of being put out of the synagogue they didn't want to really get totally involved in this now the guy's all alone parents are really reserved pharisees hate him everybody's divided over him he's totally alone and jesus comes to him and jesus says "Uh, do you believe in the son of man and the man formerly blind says um who is he sir Love the respect, right? He was messing with the Pharisees, but he respects Jesus. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. This guy really genuinely placed his faith in Christ because he immediately began to worship Christ. This guy has engaged in a transformation story. He's gone from Jesus as a man, Jesus as a prophet. Jesus did a miracle, Jesus is from God, and Jesus is my Savior. And it came because the guy was willing to tell his story often and learn in the process. So let me me close with some takeaways. Here are two really important, crucial things to remember. The first thing to remember is that when you encounter any improvement, you tell your story. When we engage in our healing prayer ministry at Grace, we have some people who came in for one thing, they encounter a significant answer to prayer in another area. Sometimes they come in for requesting physical healing and there is a significant emotional healing. Sometimes they come in for physical healing and there is improvement, not full improvement, but there is improvement. Whatever happens as a result of you receiving healing prayer, begin to tell your story because something happens in the storytelling phase. Bible doesn't specifically state this, but what I believe happens is that the Holy Spirit begins to teach you about Himself and about His power as you continue to tell the story. That's what is modeled for us in the healing of, of, this, of this man. So um, begin to tell your story. Now, I will tell you that this is not easy in Bartlesville. Not easy. Chicago, Dallas, Kansas City, Houston, big cities. And if you're in a church setting and you tell your story, likely nobody at work is going to hear about it. But in a mid-sized city, it's possible that if you tell your story, somebody that you know is going to hear about it and ask you about it. And I'm finding many people in Bartlesville, if they encounter God's dramatic intervention in an area, they're very reticent about how they say it because we're living in a smaller community. I urge you to push back on that. And if God does something in your life, tell the story. Because in the telling of the story, the Spirit moves and begins to teach you about God's goodness in your life and His power in your life. And the story is ministry to other people. I'll tell the story again. I've told it before, but when Cindy and I started to celebrate recovery 13 years ago, we were in the midst of a story. Our family was struggling with some issues with our teenage kids. It was rough. I handled the struggles one way. Cindy handled the struggles another way. The differences in how we handled those struggles put some sparks in our relationship and it was a challenging time. Celebrate Recovery caused us to begin to look at our situation as a story, we were in a transitional season, because we were working the same 12 steps which were tied to discipleship, the 12 steps at CR are always tied toward biblical discipleship, we began to significantly change in our marriage and in our family. We started telling the story. I told my Celebrate Recovery testimony to our Celebrate Recovery group. I told it to Southern Hills Baptist Church Recovery Group down, down in Tulsa. As The more I told the story, the more I saw God's goodness in the place of my, my story. Was it intimidating for me to, to do that at first? Yes, it was, because I'm, I'm around sometimes pastors who say, I will never disclose anything personal about myself. It could get me fired. I could have people reject me. I could have people look down on me. Many pastors are very afraid to self-disclose about things. Well, we decided to not do that, but to be very very open about things and began to tell the story of how God transformed our marriage and our family as we work Celebrate Recovery together. So then, last summer I'm speaking at a church in Seattle. And a young mother comes up to me and she says, I've always wanted to meet you. I said, oh, okay. She said, you have to tell me what you did as a dad to raise four amazing children who are passionately pursuing Christ and who are thriving in their professions. Now, when she said that, like I was pretty humbled that she said that. And when she said that, I said uh, it was a lot of grace. And immediately, what came up in me was God. What happened was, in the you you gave us a story, and I began to tell the story of God's power and our in our weakness. I'm I'm just saying that allowed me to see my story come into a place of fruition that i never in a million years could have seen 15 years ago never in a million years could i have seen that and yet god made a story that was moving and changing come to a place of fruition what i'm saying is you got to tell your story because in the telling process god changes you here's the second takeaway Second takeaway is this. When you encounter any sort of improvement, be prepared for pushback. Be prepared for pushback. The Pharisees didn't believe the man's story. His parents were a little bit reticent about the story. Um, be prepared for, for, for pushback. So here's an interesting thing. Uh, here is this study done by the Pew Foundation that says 90% of Americans have prayed for healing. Does that surprise you? Uh, there was a medical journal article that I read recently that said the the number one form of alternative and complementary prayer in America is uh, a complementary medicine in America is healing prayer. In other words, what, what this medical journal article was saying was the first thing that most people do in America is they they pray for their own healing. So that kind of got me interested, and I, I I thought, okay, so I wonder if there's a study on what percentage of pastors believe in healing prayer versus what percentage of doctors believe in healing prayer. And uh, I've got to become pretty good using Google Scholar. And I found a- an article that, I don't have the stats exactly right, but the article that, that talked about this study that they had done among American physicians, I don't know if it's family practice or general practitioner, where they said that 59% of these doctors they had surveyed believed in the efficacy of healing prayer 59 what was the percentage among pastors it was lower it was 39 it was 39 and they interviewed one of these doctors and he said hey here's the reason why the reason why is uh we know the best of medical science we know the limits of medical science and there's sometimes where we encounter things with the human body that science may or may not be able to solve. We know that we're dependent upon a higher power on God. So I've talked to people who've who've said to their pastor, Pastor, God answered my prayer about this. And the person got pushback from their pastor. So what I'm saying to you is, man, tell your story. Don't get discouraged by pushback. It may come. Power through it. Because as you tell your story, God is going to work in that story and shift you and change you into somebody who is more passionate about the power of God in your life. Let's stand for a closing prayer. And uh, Pastor Mike is going to, going to close us in prayer. God, I thank you for, uh, for your word this morning and the story of the, the man born blind. We are all that man at times in our life in various forms of brokenness and we know that you are actively working and bringing transformation all throughout the people that are here this morning and so I just I thank you for that I thank you for your glory and the way that you work that you compassionately move in to our brokenness and um, so I pray in all the ways that you're doing that today that you will help us to be bold in telling our story that we won't keep it to ourselves when you're working and, and doing something miraculous in our lives that we will tell the story And that we will see those who are broken and hurting and we'll have the courage to go out there and move in and share your love, your grace, your mercy with the people that are hurting around us. We thank you so much for all that you're doing. We pray that your spirit will go with us in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.